Good afternoon. Welcome to the Hayek Auditorium for this afternoon's Policy Forum. My name is Jerry Taylor. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I'll be moderating the event today. One would think that energy academics and market specialists would have had the OPEC cartel figured out by now. After all, it's been around since 1960. It displaced the Texas Railroad Commission as the world's most powerful oil cartel in 1971. It's been a central focus of foreign policy elites since the 1973 Arab oil embargo. It's a perennial topic of academic investigation and a political repository for all that is thought to be wrong with the oil and gasoline industry as long as the, since the Nixon administration. Yet, there still seems to be a great deal of public disagreement about what the cartel actually does and exactly how different oil markets are with the cartel relative to what they would be without the cartel. Our forum today discusses that topic. A new study is being released today by Securing America's Energy Future. I have it right here. It's a study that if you haven't picked one up yet, you can find it outside the uh, auditorium here. Uh, and uh, we also have outside a, uh, several different Cato publications, uh, most uh, interestingly this one by uh, adjunct scholar Dick Gordon, uh, which covers many of the same topics, albeit with some slightly different perspectives. Uh, the SAFE study that we're discussing today is co-authored by our first speaker, our longtime friend Andy Morris, and is titled The Impact of Cartel Behavior on Global Oil Prices and the Challenge to Free Markets, which just happens to be the title of our forum today. Andy is the D. Paul Jones and uh, Charlene Jones Chairholder of Law at the University of Alabama. He is the author or co-author of more than 60 books, uh, book chapters, excuse me, scholarly articles and books, including several published by the Cato Institute. He's affiliated with a number of think tanks, uh, including the Property and Environmental Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, the Regulatory Studies Center at George Washington University, the Institute for Energy Research, the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and the NYU Center for Law and Labor and Employment Law. Andy's work focuses on regulatory issues involving environmental, energy, and offshore financial centers. Over the past 10 years, he's regularly taught and lectured in China, Greece, Guatemala, Hong Kong, and Nepal. Uh, Andy earned his bachelor's degree from Princeton, a JD and a master's in public affairs from the University of Texas at Austin, and a PhD in economics from MIT. So please join me in welcoming Andy Morris. Well, uh, thank you, Jerry, and uh, thank you uh, to Cato for sponsoring this discussion, and particularly to uh, Jerry for making it happen, uh, for SAFE, uh, for prompting the initial work Roger and I did, and uh, to Fred Smith for taking time out of having FedEx do its excellent job of delivering packages to me uh, to participate. Uh, my co-author, Roger Miners, sends his regrets. Unfortunately, a last-minute uh, medical mini-crisis prevented him from coming. He's made a full recovery and is on the mend. Uh, so we can call him if we have any questions uh, for him. Uh, Roger and I have been working on energy issues uh, in a number of areas for a number of years. Uh, mostly we've dug into green energy, and you can get our book, The False Promise of Green Energy, published by Cato outside. Uh, and the important problem in those areas uh, has been government subsidies for technologies which aren't economically viable with all the public choice problems you would expect to result from handing out billions in other people's money. So we were intrigued when SAFE asked us to survey the literature on the international oil market, and our assignment was to determine if there's a consensus about the competitiveness of that market. So we hired a professional research librarian because we believe in the division of labor, uh, and asked him to uh, call the literature 
uh, focusing on the economics literature, but including others that came to him. And there's a description of our methodology on page uh, 33 of the report. And we summarized about 250 uh, publications in the lengthy appendix to the report. Uh, so you can see those there as well. And the conclusion of that review is our impression of the sense of the literature. Uh, the first part of the paper is sort of an overview of energy and oil in general. So those not familiar with the uh, industry have a primer and a sense of the changes that have occurred over the other year, over the years. Uh, but I want to focus on uh, what we uh, concluded about what, uh, what people think about the state of the international oil market. Uh, we begin with the notion that oil and other energy sources are really the lifeblood of all economic activity. Uh, those who are hostile toward energy production, who we've dealt with uh, in our earlier work, uh, particularly those who think carbon-based energy sources can be replaced by windmills and sunshine, uh, have uh, different uh, views. But uh, generally, our standard of living is built on energy. It's not just directly used, as it was when I flew here from Alabama, but it's indirectly embedded in products as well. So everything from clothing to pharmaceuticals has embedded within it considerable amounts of energy, used to move supplies, to make products, and so forth. Uh, some people are willing to sacrifice that, uh, but we aren't, and we don't think most people in the world are. So we found three main areas in which we think uh, there's a, some consensus that the world oil market diverges in an important way from a competitive ideal. Now, when we say diverge from a competitive market, we don't mean that it doesn't look like an Econ 101 textbook market. Almost no market does, and mostly that doesn't matter. Markets are about a discovery process in which entrepreneurs seeking opportunities for profit find needs which they can satisfy while they make a profit, much as Mr. Smith did with FedEx, which it's today it's very easy to take for granted, but which at the time was a revolutionary idea. The question we were interested in is whether or not there's something different about oil markets in a way that interferes with that discovery process. And there are three big differences we think matter and which we think are widely recognized uh, in oil markets. First, there is an explicit cartel uh, organized by oil exporting nations that tries hard and sometimes succeeds in reducing supply so as to raise prices. Second, most countries do not uh, have a system of private ownership of mineral resources, including petroleum. The United States has much more than most in that regard, but even here, a great deal of our oil resources are on public land, and the production of oil from those lands and in much of the world is a political decision, which is only partially determined by market forces. And third, a great deal of the world's oil production is controlled by national oil companies, which act in ways that are very different from profit-maximizing firms run by entrepreneurs. So let me just say a little bit about each of those things. Uh, first, OPEC. <coughs> Shuri said OPEC's been around for more than 50 years. We just first started paying attention to it in the early 1970s when the oil shock brought it to our attention as Americans started waiting in gas lines. Uh, however, uh, one could make an argument that OPEC is in part at least a response to earlier U.S. energy policy because Venezuela uh, took uh, note of our effort to impose import quotas on oil in the late 1950s and decided it would be a good idea if suppliers got together to talk about uh, how to uh, react to that. And that, that's one of the form formative events in, in OPEC. Now, uh, in the years since the uh, oil price, uh, oil shock of the 70s and, and all the problems that came out of that, many of which were the result of the Nixon administration's efforts to uh, do something about rising oil prices, uh, and which plunged the U.S. Uh, fuel market into disarray. In the years since, uh, OPEC's effectiveness has come and gone. Uh, oil prices went down in the 1980s, 
uh, which removed the matter from the general uh, concern. Uh, oil cost more than it had in the 1960s, but a dollar a gallon gas was tolerable and now actually seems like a remarkably a remarkable bargain. Supplies were plentiful. Uh, there were price gyrations, but it was not again until about a decade ago that prices began to really ramp up. Oil prices today are below their peak, but they remain very high by historical standards in real terms. Uh, so our observations from the literature are, first, while there's some disagreement over OPEC's impact, we think there is a broad consensus that, as described by Professor Morris Edelman, who's sort of the father of modern oil economics, OPEC is what he called a clumsy cartel. By a clumsy cartel, we mean that it just sometimes manages to have the impact it wants to have, and sometimes does not. It had a decade-plus good run in the 1970s uh, to the early 1980s, and now again, it's had a good run for the past decade, and we are bearing the cost of that. Now, an effective cartel would not want to have wild price fluctuations. It wants the members of the cartel to behave in reliable ways, to be highly profitable suppliers who work together to limit supply and to keep the price above the competitive level so they can all enjoy monopoly profits. As economic theory tells us, that does not mean they would be charging the highest price possible, but instead the most profitable price given the supply and demand con conditions. For example, OPEC clearly does not have an interest in the price of oil being so high that it induces substitution away from oil such that its total revenue falls. Now, we don't know what the price, the profit maximizing price is, and probably OPEC doesn't know either, but they're certainly working hard trying to figure it out and trying to get the price to that point. And the best evidence, we think, suggests that the current price of oil is well above the levels that would exist in a more competitive market. Unfortunately for OPEC, however, and fortunately for the rest of us, maintaining a cartel is hard work, and OPEC is not nearly as successful at it as they would like to be. Indeed, sometimes, uh, they, like today, uh, they may be about to encounter particularly stiff uh, headwinds. Uh, that yesterday it was reported that Iraq is insisting that it be permitted to boost its output to its pre-Gulf War quota. Uh, and uh, the news stories about this talk about how uh, there really isn't a good mechanism for allocating quotas among OPEC members. And so OP Iraq has made a threat, I don't know how credible that threat is, that it will leave OPEC and pump as much oil as it wants uh, if it's not permitted a higher quota. And as the, as this lack of a formal mechanism suggests, uh, and in the history of OPEC and its members' um, problems with one another, ranging from uh, the Iran-Iraq war uh, and the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq, uh, motivated at least in part by a desire for Kuwait's oil revenues and disputes over the relative level of production, uh, they don't always get along. Uh, so it doesn't always uh, work out the way OPEC would like. Uh, because of its clumsiness, however, OPEC sometimes raises the price successfully and sometimes doesn't, and this actually introduces another problem, which I think may even be more serious than the level of the price, which is the greater volatility in oil prices that results from having a clumsy cartel uh, at work. And that, that issue is one uh, that we thought, uh, after reviewing the literature, that economists have paid too little attention to. Uh, volatility makes investment decisions much, much harder. Uh, for example, if you were an automaker, it would make it much harder to predict the right mix of cars to produce between high mileage and uh, roomier and more powerful cars uh, when consumer perceptions of future gas prices vary a lot uh, because of the uh, greater volatility. And for businesses that use a great deal of fuel, like Mr. Smith's and his competitor UPS or the airlines, I would think volatility would make investment decisions uh, very, very difficult about the types of fleets to purchase. Is it worth the capital investment uh, to create fueling stations to convert truck fleets to compress natural gas? 
Uh, that's a harder decision to know when you can't predict uh, future prices. Uh, so it's, uh, the greater volatility is, I think, a serious problem. And we didn't see any estimates of the cost borne by firms and the economy by these, caused by these huge price swings. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, large fuel users, which are incredibly important to our economy, ranging from airlines to truckers, are going to have a hard time uh, adjusting. Um, the inelasticity of demand in many of these areas is such that uh, it's, it's going to be impossible for, the, for shippers to pass the prices on to consumers. Uh, and and, and uh, the trucking industry, for example, the, the price of trucks or the price of drivers may be relatively constant, uh, but oil is a wild card. And it certainly uh, disrupts plans when fuel prices swing wildly. Economists generally teach fuel prices, uh, firms rather, as a, a sort of magic black box where things somehow get fixed and we move forward. Uh, and indeed, uh, firms often adapt uh, relatively well. But the process of change cannot be easy. And it seems to us that's a, a topic that's inadequately studied. Uh, so we didn't, uh, we didn't find nearly enough about that. And we think that's an important uh, consequence of OPEC. Now, OPEC's not the only reason for higher prices, right? It's a clumsy cartel, not a perfectly functioning cartel. And certainly, a big part of the reason prices are higher uh, is that there's greater demand for oil outside the US, Japan, and Europe, the historical uh, large markets. And China and India, in particular, are demanding and will continue to demand more energy. Uh, just for example, Chinese auto ownership levels are about where the US was in the mid-1910s on a per capita basis. Now, even if they all buy hybrids, future uh, Chinese auto buyers uh, uh, are going to be buying a lot more vehicles. And they're, they're much more likely to act like Americans than they are like Europeans, because physically China looks more like the US than it does like Europe. And so we're going to see an increasing energy demand from places like China. But rising demand and growing nations won't mean a price spike. Uh, suppliers can see the increased demand. They could satisfy it. Uh, so, uh, for example, while uh, commodity prices fluctuate, despite a rising GDP in many nations, over time, most commodity prices are relatively steady uh, or declining as market participants move to compete for expanding demand and ever-improving technology reduces production costs. That hasn't necessarily been true in uh, oil. And a key reason for that uh, appears to be underinvestment in development of new fields uh, by oil exporting nations. For example, uh, OPEC nations like Venezuela have huge reserves. Uh, and Venezuela is indeed one of the largest reserve holders in the world. But output from Venezuela has been declining. Now, it's not been declining because the Venezuelan government necessarily said we're going to have a program to, to reduce supply, uh, uh, supply so that we can comply with our OPEC, cartel, or OPEC quotas. Uh, and probably there's something to do with corruption in Venezuela uh, in which the uh, government is taking revenue out of the oil industry and spending it uh, on bribing voters and so forth. Uh, but the problem is made uh, all the worse by the fact that it takes place within the cartel framework. And that brings us to the second and third uh, problems with the international oil market, uh, the presence of national oil companies and resource ownership uh, by the public sector. Uh, the large majority of oil reserves identified to date are in the hands of government agencies, which are largely under the thumb of deeply corrupt rulers uh, who tend not to have the same time horizons as private firms. Uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the most reliable uh, of uh, oil producers, and uh, I don't think it's high on the list of Transparency International's uh, least corrupt uh, governments. And most, uh, most places are, are much, much worse. Uh, firms doing uh, exploration, development, and refining work, such as the American multinationals, uh, are highly competitive and have a minuscule direct ownership of oil supplies 
Uh, and blaming them for high prices is uh, deeply misguided, but very popular to do. Uh, these companies place huge sums at risk when they take on projects uh, that the corrupt and incompetent national oil companies can accomplish. The reward is often expropriation. It's very risky. Uh, but uh, what we see is uh, the cartel uh, and the, the national oil companies and the public ownership of resources all pushing together to reduce uh, supply. Now, what's going to happen to oil prices in the future? I don't have any idea. If I did, I'd be lying on a beach somewhere uh, living off my investments rather than speaking to you and teaching uh, for a living. Uh, OPEC might splinter, uh, but as uh, we noted already, the, the failure of large uh, oil pool nations to invest in new fields means there's not an easy increase in supply. So the price is unlikely to collapse to levels that we enjoyed a decade ago. The price could shoot up as one of the many terrible events that uh, regularly plague the Middle East happens or something goes wrong in Venezuela. Uh, the price uh, supply might go up. Uh, we've certainly found a lot of oil and natural gas in the United States, uh, although many of our politicians seem determined to limit our development of these resources. And unfortunately, they're able to because much of them are on public land. So there's no switch to flip to draw on alternative supplies. So essentially, our uh, conclusion from all this is that over the past 40 years, the price should have been steadier than it has been. Uh, were oil supplies controlled by private entities rather than dictators grasping for cash organized into a cartel, a larger oil supply would exist today at lower prices. Uh, the International Energy Agency says $50 to $80 a barrel would be likely. Um, that sounds uh, reasonable to us. Uh, second. Uh, economic theory focuses a great deal on the deadweight loss caused by monopolies. Uh, prices above the competitive level mean we're all a bit poorer due to the inefficient allocation of resources. And there's a lot of good work on the deadweight loss. But larger than that uh, is also the transfer of wealth from buyers to sellers when prices are above the competitive levels. Most economists treat those wealth transfers as economically neutral. Uh, transaction costs aside, that assumption is not uh, justified. Uh, Fairness does matter, though economists like to pretend that they are uh, in very highly scientific positive ways above normative matters, uh, but voters and policymakers care about this a lot. Uh, most importantly, we think, though, uh, the above normal profits are not captured uh, by the same uh, people. A lot of this money is going uh, to places uh, and to people that uh, are diff quite different in type from the people who would get it if it was being captured directly. When a prices are super normal, the transfer goes uh, to the governments of Nigeria, Venezuela, Libya, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. And this transfer has maybe been $2 trillion over the, the past years. Numbers hard to know since the monopoly premium is difficult to calculate, but certainly hundreds of billions a year in recent years uh, is likely. And the impact of that wealth transfer would seem a rich subject for analysis. But again, uh, there's been relatively little uh, analysis of it in the literature. Um, now, um, not on our list of things that there's a consent, that any form of consensus about in the literature uh, is something the man on the street would probably include, which is the conspiracy of evil oil companies uh, engaged in gouging the consumer. This is a perennial topic among politicians and oil companies. It's been the subject of regular investigations by Congress, state legislators, the FTC, the DOJ, and every other regulator able to get in front of a microphone. Uh, we don't think there's any evidence to support a claim that oil companies behave any differently than any other business in terms of their pricing behavior, and certainly they don't control uh, oil supplies uh, today if they ever did. Uh, what there is evidence is that when oil markets have been allowed to function as they were in the 1930s and 1950s, without a great deal of political interference, that there is considerable innovation in everything from production to refining. 
the long fall in real energy prices over the 20th century was a result of that innovation in the marketplace. Uh, Roger and my brief from SAFE did not include speculating about what to do about these things, which is a good thing since we don't know, uh, but we do believe there needs to be a conversation about these issues. We can't pretend that international oil markets are textbook economic markets. Now, any efforts to address these problems need to take into account all of the problems that come with government solutions. We have to guard against rent-seeking and the destructive behavior that so regularly dominates efforts at energy policy. Uh, Jerry Taylor has stressed the need for what he called crisply targeted efforts to address market failures, and that should surely be a key principle in any solution. Fortunately, I don't think Jerry's likely to be appointed energy secretary uh, in this administration or any other, which would be a rec policy recommendation I could get excited about, although I doubt he could. Um, but uh, our general record on energy policy is not encouraging. Our energy policies in the past have leaned heavily on hidden measures buried in the tax code. Uh, by some estimates, as much as 60% of energy expenditures by the federal government are so-called tax expenditures rather than direct ones. And some more sunlight on that would be helpful, and Cato has certainly done a lot of work in that. What Roger and I hope is that this forum and our report and the conversation that SAFE is attempting to promote will be part of a larger conversation, particularly among those who lean toward market solutions, uh, to define the problem and think about how we might address it without repeating the past energy policy mistakes and making things worse. Thank you. Thank you, Andy, for sharing with us what you found in your review of the literature. Uh, our next speaker, Fred Smith, will discuss what that might suggest as far as uh, public policy remedy. Uh, Fred needs very little introduction. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of FedEx and the co-chairman of the Energy Security Leadership Council, which is a project of securing America's energy future. Since founding FedEx in 1971, Fed has been an active and knowledgeable proponent of regulatory reform, free trade, open skies agreements for aviation, and increasing of, increasingly of late for energy policy reform. In addition to the many awards and acknowledgments that Fred has secured for FedEx over the years, I mean, FedEx, as you probably know, has been perennially listed as one of the world's most admired companies, best companies to work for, et cetera. Fred has been remarkably engaged in the public policy sphere. He served as the chairman of the Board of Governors for the International Air Transport Association and the U.S. Air Transport Association, as chairman of the Business Roundtable Security Task Force, chairman of the U.S.-China Business Council, current chairman of the French-American Business Council, and perhaps most importantly, a former board member of the Cato Institute. Fred earned his BA from Yale and then went off to serve as an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1966 from to 1970, which I'm sure was quite an education in itself. So let me turn over the podium now to our next speaker, Fred Smith. Thank you very much, Jerry. It's good to be back at Cato. It's a great organization. I was proud to serve on the board for many years. It's uh, scholarship is impeccable and its uh, orientation towards free markets are certainly my philosophy as well in most cases. <clears throat> in the area of energy, however, uh, perhaps I've been a little bit of an apostate, but uh, perhaps these uh, marvelous studies of, by these erudite um, uh, professors will uh, give me a little bit of a um, pass on that. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the Energy Security Leadership Council and, and why we came into being and what, what our recommendations are uh, to deal with the issues uh, that have just been discussed. 
In 2006, um, I was contacted by General PX Kelly, who along with the CEO of uh, SAFE, Robbie Diamond, had come up with the idea of putting together a group of former military officers, retired four-star generals and admirals, and business CEOs whose um, enterprises used a great deal of petroleum, and in the case of FedEx, to uh, point out my bona fides, uh, as uh, Professor Morris uh, mentioned a moment ago, we do indeed use a lot of fossil fuels, over 1.5 billion gallons a year in the various FedEx operating companies, FedEx Express, FedEx Ground, FedEx Freight, and FedEx uh, Services. Um, Accordingly, uh, we were uh, exceedingly interested in the uh, seemingly inexorable rise in the price of uh, fuel that had begun in the early part of this decade, largely because of the increasing demand from the developing world, particularly China, which has accounted for about 40% of all increased demand in the 21st century. And uh, so we put the Energy Security Leadership Council together and uh, with the expertise of SAFE did some uh, very careful analysis of the energy situation and uh, we came to uh, the conclusion that uh, the oil market is indeed not a free market because of the reasons that you just heard. And more importantly, uh, the dependence of the United States on imported petroleum from uh, unstable and in many cases unfriendly parts of the world had created, uh, after nuclear proliferation and biological weapons, probably our largest single economic and national security risk. And in fact, uh, at the time the ESLC was formed, the United States was involved in two shooting wars, uh, which were directly related to oil, as has been uh, widely acknowledged. The 1990-91 uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm was specifically about oil. You can argue Iraq and Afghanistan were indirectly related to it, but uh, they all stem back from the uh, causes belli of um, the uh, U.S.-led operation into Kuwait uh, uh, and Iraq in uh, 1990. So uh, our recommendations, uh, having uh, come to these two conclusions, that the market was not free and this was an enormous economic and national security risk, uh, we prepared a series of, of recommendations. And they were essentially threefold. First, and by far the most important, was to maximize United States and uh, Western Hemisphere uh, oil and gas production to reduce the uh, dependency of our economy on oil from these unfriendly and unstable uh, parts of the world. The second recommendation, and here is, is uh, where I think some of my friends at Cato uh, would probably not give me high marks, uh, but we felt was absolutely an essential part of the solution because the market was not free, uh, and that was to use less petroleum, to reduce the amount of petroleum as a percentage of our uh, GDP, and our recommendation was to reinstate fuel efficiency standards, uh, which had uh, not been changed for many years. And the third recommendation was to the extent 
that it was economically feasible to do so, uh, try to develop uh, cost-effective alternative uh, power systems to diversify the U.S. Uh, transport sector away from petroleum. Now, that's exceedingly important because 93% of all transportation in this country is powered by petroleum. And of the current 18.7 uh, or thereabouts million barrels of oil per day that we use in this country, about 12.7, I may be off just a little bit, but not much, is consumed by transportation. So if you want to significantly uh, reduce the amount of petroleum the United States uses and reduce our dependency on uh, imports, you have to diversify away from petroleum in the, in the transport sector. Now, as Professor Morris said, this has been a huge economic issue. We've transferred uh, many estimates uh, are in the line of the $2 trillion uh, level that, that he mentioned. Uh, in 2008, the United States uh, transferred about $500 billion worth of wealth to other parts of the world, uh, which if that oil and, and gas had been produced in the United States would have been in our GDP rather than in someone else's GDP. The recommendations of the Energy Security Leadership Council were uh, widely discussed and a big part of the debate that went on in the Energy Security Act of 2007 during the Bush administration. And in fact, the Bush administration changed course and supported new fuel efficiency standards. The ESLC has continued its work uh, and uh, supported uh, continued uh, R&D and uh, development and deployment of uh, hybrid electric and uh, all-electric vehicles, uh, understanding that they are not uh, commercially uh, competitive uh, with internal combustion engines as yet. Secondarily, we have advocated uh, adoption of uh, CNG and LNG power for large heavy vehicles where centralized fueling makes the increased capital cost of these types of vehicles uh, affordable relative to continued use of, of uh, diesel and continued research and development into uh, various uh, biofuels from algae to waste and so forth. Uh, we supported as well the Obama administration's increase in fuel efficiency standards to I think 54 uh, miles per gallon and I think the record at this point in time is pretty clear. The United States has indeed uh, lowered the amount of petroleum that we're importing. The technological revolution which has taken place during the period of existence of the ESLC in terms of being able to produce tight oil and the so-called fracking uh, technology has changed the energy landscape enormously. Uh, but during that period of time, the, the price of petroleum has not significantly uh, been reduced, which leads again to the uh, inevitable conclusion that to lower the United States' vulnerability from this worldwide uh, oil uh, cartel, we must continue to uh, try to diversify out of petroleum in the transportation sector. Now, just this very morning, uh, for those of you who read the Financial Times, and I do uh, each day, there was an article uh, in the uh, paper on uh, page um, 19 
And the headline is, Sub $100 Crude Oil Fails to Raise OPEC's Hassles. And uh, the first paragraph is, the script is familiar. As Brent dipped below $100 a barrel last week, investors switched their attention to Riyadh, Caracas, and Tehran, looking for a response from OPEC. I can assure you that investors would not be looking at those three national capitals if there were a free market in oil. What they did in Caracas or Tehran or Riyadh would be irrelevant to the market, which would uh, seek its own, its own level. And of course, um, uh, because uh, the uh, OPEC cartel controls the reserve capacity of oil in the world, uh, it means that those market adjustments that take place in a normally functioning market uh, will not take place. It's probably mitigated as well because of the large social commitments that have been made in all of these countries because of their oil wealth, which requires some minimum level of oil revenues to, uh, to keep the social compact uh, which, which has been made in those particular uh, countries. But the end result is that the United States' cost of petroleum remains the worldwide price. And the best uh, example of that is that both Canada and uh, Norway have been large, uh, 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 Denmark, I'm sorry, right? Den Norway? Uh, Canada and Norway have been large uh, exporters of petroleum, and yet in those uh, local markets, uh, the same uh, worldwide price for oil has, has been the rule rather than the exception. So, uh, to sum up, and, uh, and uh, before Professor Miners gets up here and, and uh, speaks, or Professor, it, Professor Smith's going to speak, I'm, I'm sorry, um, it's, it's important to uh, recognize, I think, in retrospect, that the ESLC's recommendations have been effective, and we feel uh, quite strongly that they are the continued uh, courses of action that this country should uh, should take uh, to mitigate these uh, national security and, and economic risk. And they are, again, one, to maximize United States oil and gas production and Western Hemisphere uh, production, particularly in Canada and uh, Mexico, including uh, producing on federal lands and in federal waters. Second, to, uh, to use less fuel to the extent that it is possible to do, to do so. And third, to invest in research and development to try to develop propulsive powers which do not require the use of uh, petroleum. So thank you very much. Thank you, Fred. <clears throat> Our final speaker this afternoon is one of the most uh, cited and widely published academics in the field of petroleum economics. <clears throat> Jim Smith is the Kerry M. McGuire Chair in Oil and Gas Management at Southern Methodist University and is one of the nation's leading scholars on microeconomic theory, managerial economics, and energy economics and policy. His research in the energy arena has addressed the international oil market, our subject today, international oil taxes and investment, auction theory, real options, energy finance, and risk management. Whenever I've had the occasion to address cartel-related issues, I've found Jim's work to be the best researched and most analytically compelling in the field, which is why I invited him to join us today. Of particular note is his 2009 piece for the Journal of Economic Perspectives titled World Oil, Market or Mayhem, his 2009 chapter on OPEC for the Princeton Encyclopedia of the World Economy, 
his 2009 chapter on the same topic for the new Palgrave Dictionary of Economics, and his 2005 article for the Energy Journal titled Inscrutable OPEC Behavioral Tests of the Cartel Hypothesis. Jim is an editor of the Energy Journal, the world's leading peer-reviewed energy journal, and uh, which is published by the International Association of Energy Economics. He is also on the editorial board of the Quarterly Review of Economics and Finance. He received his BS from the University of Illinois and his master's and PhD from Harvard. Please join me in welcoming Jim Smith. Thank you, Jerry. And uh, especially, I want to thank you for the invitation to participate here today. You gave me the perfect excuse to leave SMU at this very hour as the Bush Library is being dedicated two blocks from my office with five presidents in attendance. <laughs> we have been locked down all week, uh, and I was only too happy to have a reason to be elsewhere today. Uh, but I was also happy because this topic is very close to my heart, and I had read the paper by Andy Morris and Roger Miners and congratulate them on the work. Uh, there are so many things in the paper that I can agree with that it would take too long and be too boring, frankly, for you for me to focus on that. So I'm choosing instead to focus on a few areas where I have maybe a different perspective than you have heard so far today. Uh, and uh, that will uh, be the focus uh, of my few remarks. The paper is very timely. This session is very timely in, again, raising questions about the structure and the operation of the global oil market. But I would point out that this discussion and the conversation that we're starting comes at a time of reduced concern about petroleum scarcity and future oil prices. Uh, we know that Citigroup uh, at the end of last month came out with a study under Ed Morse's tutelage uh, that is uh, touting peak oil demand, that OECD demand is going to recede, not continue to grow, with long-term uh, price prospects may be in the $80 to $90 per barrel range, uh, looking out to the year 2020. I've seen corporate uh, long-term forecasts that say essentially the same thing, uh, looking out to 2020, $80, $90 of oil is really quite plausible. And of course, if you look at the NYMEX forward contract for WTI, you'll see that it is in uh, ever greater backwardation. The more you look to the future, the lower the future's price is until we get out to 2021, where, as of this morning, the price was settled at $81 per barrel. So this is a very different time than we experienced uh, 2007, 2008, or even a couple of years ago when prices were lingering above the $100 level. Uh, and so I think that we, we do have to, to take into the context uh, that the, the peak oil mania, which swept most public discussions of the world oil market, is clearly in recession at this time. Uh, another comment I would make before delving into details is that uh, the, the, the article is uh, resplendent with citations at the end. It's a great collection uh, pointing to the research and organized by subject area, and I commend the authors and their hired librarian who did that. But I found that the actual number of citations in the paper was quite a bit lower than the number of papers that are actually referenced as being potentially important. And in terms of the paper being titled a meta-analysis, well, maybe a mini meta-analysis uh, of the large literature. It's just too large, in fact, to survey or to synthesize. 
Which brings me to the first point that I want to make, and that is the question of how much consensus exists about the role that OPEC has played and their influence on the market. Frankly, I don't think there is a consensus. I have reviewed this literature over many years myself, uh, and I know one thing, in fact, is that there is statistical evidence on all sides of the debate. There's enough statistical evidence to support every particular hypothesis about what OPEC is and what it does. And all of that has been published, which is to say it just leaves the literature in a rather confused state. Who's right? Which statistical evidence is the most important? And I think that still may be a bit of an open question. Uh, I know also that in my other role as editor of the Energy Journal, we continue to receive numerous publications, uh, submissions, uh, touting every possible thesis about what OPEC is today and where it's heading tomorrow. Uh, and again, the idea of a, of a consensus, I think, is uh, maybe overstating the degree of agreement. Consensus about certain things. I guess the greatest consensus in my mind uh, takes me back to another quotation from Maury Edelman at MIT, who's already been quoted today. But Maury was fond of saying that OPEC's dallying with price fixing is very much like singing and mountain climbing. It's a lot easier going up than coming down. Uh, and I think most people agree with that, including OPEC, that managing prices uh, in times of slack market is the trick for any cartel. It's easy to be a cartel when demand is outstripping supply. That's not where we are today. I think the, the main thesis of the paper that I take away, and it was alluded to here in uh, the presentation, and that is that OPEC has created price volatility, uncertainty, unpredictable movements of the price, which are unparalleled in any other commodity, uh, particularly any other energy commodity. And this is bad, and it should be addressed, uh, and including via maybe some of the policy uh, alternatives that Fred Smith has outlined this morning as well. I'm not sure I agree at all with that statement, that the oil price is more volatile than any other commodity or even many other commodities. So take natural gas as a contrast. The price of natural gas has been much more volatile than the price of oil in the U.S. since 1990, after the price of gas was deregulated. Since then, it's been moving more on a month-to-month -month basis than the price of oil has. Uh, and there's no cartel in natural gas, of course. It's quite a competitive industry here in the U.S. And yet, the volatility of the output of natural gas, the month-to-month -month variation in the U.S. production of gas is three times greater than the volatility of OPEC oil output. So I'm not sure we lay the blame for oil price volatility uh, at the foot of OPEC quantity variations. Being clumsy, yes, I agree with that. Uh, but in fact, their output has not been unstable to the extent that would be required to generate these types of, of uh, price movements. Uh, and natural gas is the contrast, I think, that helps to realize that point. What are the causes of the price volatility in oil then? Uh, partly OPEC, I would agree, but maybe not the main source. The main source is the fact that demand and supply are rigid. That's our preference, our ability to substitute away, our ability to provide additional supplies of alternative energy is very limited. 
And when the market is disrupted by any unpredicted event, uh, it's going to take a big price signal to get consumers to adjust and to provide incentives for producers to adjust. I wrote in that article titled Market or Mayhem uh, about a 10 times multiplier. And what that means is that historically, when there has been an upset in the oil market, a physical disruption, the price reaction has been 10 times as great as the physical trigger that caused it. For example, if 2% of world production is lost, like Libya three years ago, 2% is lost, the price flies up by 20% in the short term, 10 times multiplier. That's where the volatility comes from. It comes from the rigidity in demand, the need for strong measures to bring the market back to equilibrium, to bring the free market trades back to equilibrium. Uh, I, I would quote Shakespeare from Julius Caesar, the fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. That's our demand. That's our inability to substitute or to, to do without uh, this particular fuel. Are we better off without OPEC oil? Uh, some of the policy measures that you've heard about today are, could be viewed as weeding away from OPEC in favor of higher priced alternatives. Uh, higher prices, but lower volatility. Something to be said, much to be said for lower volatility. On the other hand, to agree to that statement seems to me to confuse first-order effects and second-order effects. Are we to impose, impose higher oil prices on everyone uh, as the cost of reducing the instability? I, I see potentially greater damage and greater cost to the economy uh, from the former, raising the level of prices uh, in the attempt to reduce the volatility of those prices. And then I think the subtext for the paper, and Fred Smith's remarks as well, uh, could partially be stated, at least a portion of the, of the paper, the subtext is, it's just not fair that they have that oil and we need it, and that they're allowed to set the price. And I can't address that. I, I can share the emotion, but it's an emotion. It's certainly not an academic uh, argument or a logical argument. There, there's no defined meaning of the term fair in the economics vernacular. We all sort of know what it means, but it's not something that economists are any better prepared to discuss than you all are or that the other members of our panel are. So I'm not here to say what's fair or not fair, but I am here to question the, the, the underlying hypothesis that OPEC has created greater volatility in oil prices. I'm not sure they've created greater volatility, and I'm not sure that the cost of eliminating that volatility uh, is actually worth uh, the efforts that would be required. So thank you very much uh, again for having me here today. Before I turn it over to the audience for questions, I am going to uh, hold this microphone hostage and ask a few of my own. Um, let me start with Fred. Just as a point of clarification, Fred, uh, in your list of three objectives for SAFE, list the, the number one objective, which I think you underscored as perhaps the most important, is to reduce dependency on sources of non-North American crude oil. Um, would you agree or disagree with the argument that even if the United States got all of its crude from North America, a supply disruption abroad would have just as big an impact as if we were importing all that crude? Or at least as big as impact on price, anyway. 
Yeah, well, <clears throat> first of all, uh, let me say, Jerry, let me say something to uh, Professor Smith's remarks there. I, I neither said anything about fairness nor volatility. And it's their oil, they can do what they want to with it. And life's not fair, so I didn't make any comment about that whatsoever. In, in, terms, of the, uh, in terms of the issue that you just mentioned, it is clear that the market for oil is worldwide. That's where I, uh, I mentioned the examples of Canada and Norway. So even if we were to source all of our petroleum from North American sources, if there were a supply disruption or the Strait of Hormuz was closed or come up with your own uh, favorite uh, scenario, we would have prices that would be set by the worldwide market. That's why the third recommendation is equally important to the first two, and that is we need to diversify our uh, sources of propulsive power away from just petroleum. Now, if you want to see a good example of that, look at the electricity market. The electricity market deals with highly volatile natural gas prices, just as Professor Smith uh, mentioned a moment ago, but it has uh, many other sources of, of, of uh, power. It's got hydroelectric, it's got geothermal, it's got coal, which is uh, unpopular in the environmental community, but we're the Saudi Arabia of coal. It's got uh, natural uh, gas. Uh, to a much lesser degree, it has solar. Uh, and of course, it, it has nuclear, which is a big part of our portfolio mix. So if you look at the price of electricity over the various uh, utility grids in the United States, the thing which is immediately apparent to you is how stable it has been relative to the volatility of oil and gas. So the solution to the issue you're talking about, which is even if self-sufficient, we would have worldwide prices for oil, is to diversify our supply uh, uh, like electricity. Now, the last thing I, I would mention in this is, you know, if we lived in a world where uh, free markets and, and market adjustments were taken for, for, for granted and that was the rule of the game, we probably wouldn't be having this discussion. But certainly the policy makers in the United States of America felt that the supply of foreign oil uh, was so essential to the security of the United States that we have spent several trillion dollars fighting wars in the Middle East. So uh, if, if the hypothetical of a completely free market was reached, we need some sort of, of great constitutional work uh, by Cato, which it also does quite uh, admirably, uh, David Boaz and so forth, to be a hell of a lot less interventionist and, and uh, uh, have a predilection to get in, engaged in, in foreign conflicts over, uh, over a commodity. So if you get the United States and North America self-sufficient in oil, hopefully previous generations of decision makers won't be tempted to launch armies to right. secure supplies. Well, as you know, Fred, uh, Cato opposed both of those Gulf Wars. and our, In fact, I've, I've written several pieces about why we should not be shedding blood for oil if that was indeed the mission uh, uh, that was in play. But it's interesting, you know, I've had a number of debates with James Woolsey, you know, who's likewise concerned about our dependence on foreign oil. 
And when I've had a chance to chat with him, who turns out Jim is, despite disagreeing with me on just about everything, a very nice fellow. Uh, he, he, I asked him why he got involved in this discussion before, uh, prior, and he says, well, the reason I got involved in the energy security issue is I think that our hands are tied in the Middle East because of our reliance on their crude. And if we weren't so reliant upon their crude, we'd have a larger portfolio of policy options in front of us as far as dealing with Islamic militancy. So I know that Ed Crane, our former president here, agrees with you. If we didn't import so much, could we be less inclined to uh, intervene in the Middle East? And hopefully that would be true. But on the other hand, Jim's Woolsey and a lot of neocons think if we didn't import so much crew, we might actually be more ambitious in the Middle East. So I don't know how that would play out. I, th I think the budgetary pressures we're under are going to solve a lot of that yeah. uh, by itself. Let me ask a question of, um, of Andy. Andy, um, Let's assume that, uh, if you're correct, that OPEC constrains production and thus produces higher oil prices than otherwise would be the case. And if you're correct that oil prices are more volatile because of OPEC than otherwise would be the case. Uh, I'm wondering what it is that prevents markets from efficiently adjusting. For instance, if there's less crude oil in the market because of OPEC, well, that's just a greater incentive to conserve. So is there a market failure as far as market response and conservation? And if there's greater volatility, I would assume that market actors would have a greater incentive to hedge against price volatility, which you can do in futures markets if you're a major actor. And if you're just a consumer, well, one way to hedge against price volatility is just buy energy efficient stuff because you know prices are going to go all over the place. Um, would you agree that markets are capable of adjusting to the problems that OPEC puts at our economic doorstep or that it isn't? Uh, certainly markets can adjust to almost anything, right? So markets appear everywhere and markets can adjust. I'll qualify, adjust efficiently. Adjust, uh, adjust efficiently, I mean, again, I, yes, we can react to, if you jack the price of oil up, people will react, they'll change their behavior. It may take them a while, I don't buy a car every year, so it's gonna take me a while to buy a more fuel efficient car. Uh, I don't think that's the issue, whether we can adjust to a, a problem. The question is whether or not the sort of, after the adjustment, we're better off or worse off compared to where we would be if we didn't have to make that adjustment. So, so what can we do about the existence of a cartel? It seems to us that Saudi Arabia doesn't ask our permission, neither do the rest no, of the OPEC. It's interesting, actually. One of the things that I, I learned that I hadn't known when reading some of the history of o OPEC is how much, uh, particularly the Nixon and Ford administrations, thought OPEC was a terrific idea. And the reason they did was they wanted to transfer resources to friendly governments there, and they didn't think the American people would put up with writing a check to the Saudis. So they, an indirect way of writing a check to the Saudis was to promote higher oil prices and thus transfer resources, particularly to the Saudis and Iran. So you can remember that uh, in the Reagan administration, uh, President Bush was sent, uh, excuse me, President Reagan sent Vice President Bush out to Riyadh in 1985 to head off the price collapse that everybody saw coming, simply to keep the Saudi government uh, uh, well-funded and thus an active ally against Soviet uh, power in the Middle East. Yeah, so, so I think, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, U.S. policy, we've often, uh, in pursuit of things that most people in this room, since they're at a Cato event, probably wouldn't like, uh, the U.S. government has actually promoted OPEC mm -hmm. uh, over the years. Well, that, that's a good segue to Jim. I wanted to ask Jim a question about the Texas Railroad Commission. Um, there are, I, I've run into a number of different academic and policy papers from the gray literature, from the peer-reviewed literature, that make the case that cartels are our friend are the consumer's friend, not just the producer's friend, but the consumer's friend. The argument goes that the natural state of things in oil markets is price volatility for the reasons you mentioned, because of the elastic supply and demand curves and all that. Uh, and that a well-functioning cartel would be on balance were it well-functioning and not clumsy, 
uh, capable of reducing price volatility and giving more predictability to the market and that sort of thing since that's in producers' interest as well. Uh, do you think that uh, the Texas Railroad Commission played that role of the well-functioning cartel that gave us some price stability during its period of suzerainty before it was displaced by OPEC? And then secondly, do you think that any cartel can really do that, since that seems to be something I run across every now and then in the literature? Well, it's a great question, and there's an important difference between the Texas Railroad Commission and OPEC. I think that the Texas Railroad Commission did a very good job of stabilizing oil prices. They went about it very formally by having monthly surveys of expected uh, demand. They also had the power legally to shut in production. Uh, they were the conservation uh, regulator in the state of Texas, and this program spread through all of the state conservation commissions. So it was it would be a legally enforceable uh, cartel. OPEC members are individual sovereigns. We know that OPEC is described as a sovereign. It's really a collection of individual sovereigns, none of which have the authority to enforce their will on the others. Every cartel in that situation faces the problem of what's called prisoner's dilemma. It's great if everybody sticks with the plan, but nobody has an individual incentive to do that. They want the others to cut back while they can enjoy the gains. This is what the Texas Railroad Commission solved. It provided a mechanism to enforce discipline. And frankly, OPEC has sought uh, in, uh, in vain for a similar type of enforcement. You mentioned 1985, 86, when the Saudis finally brought the hammer down and said, okay, we're gonna force this by bringing prices down under $10. That got their attention for a while, but then cheating on the quotas, again, always breaks through. And I would point out that a cartel that cheats is essentially not a cartel. It's a competitive market. If all the members produce to where their marginal benefit is maximized, well, that's what competitive producers do as well. So in, in some sense, we have seen a mixture of a competitive versus market power structure within OPEC, and it does vary year to year, depending upon other circumstances, both political as well as economic. One of your uh, papers that most uh, quite interested, one of the arguments you made in a paper which quite interested me was that we see very little evidence, according to your work, that the cartel you, puts its foot on the, uh, on the gas or on the brake to try to adjust oil prices <coughs> by increasing or decreasing production, as most people think. But the reality is, in other words, you don't see much variability in OPEC production. You never have. But what you do see is a lack of investment in upstream capacity. OPEC can produce today about as much as it could produce in 1973 or 1975 or something like that. And so it, your, your paper argued that the real impact of the cartel isn't goosing the market or strangling the market and trying to manipulate prices. The real impact of, car, of the OPEC cartel is, is that it, for whatever reason, isn't investing in upstream capacity like you otherwise might have expected. Um, one thing when I, that I thought when I read that is that, uh, well, the cartel may be the reason why they're not investing in upstream capacity. Perhaps there's some sort of secret agreement that, like the alcoholic who can't promise not to drink again, they can promise not to restock the liquor cabinet, and that's what they're going to do. But if that's the case, isn't there a possible alternative explanation that, well, these, reg these are regimes which have short-term time horizons because they're largely authoritarian. They are in unstable parts of the world. They've got tens of billion dollars, which they can either invest in upstream capacity that may or may not pay back to them some years down the road because that regime may not be in place, or they can pay it off to political opponents, secret police, military, grand uh, uh, palaces and whatnot and get immediate consumption. I'm wondering what you, what you make of that 
of, of that cause for the lack of upstream capacity? Is it really the cartel or is that settled yet? Oh, it's probably not settled yet, but I do firmly believe that their main impact on the market has been the fact that they have never allowed much excess capacity to build up. It only builds up when there's a global economic slowdown. So it builds up not purposefully on OPEC's behalf, but it builds up because they didn't, they didn't see the slowdown coming. Uh, and then prices erode because that excess capacity gets used. Uh, I think OPEC is quite afraid of excess capacity, especially in the hands of anyone but Saudi Arabia. Uh, and therefore, better that it not be built, and it's expensive. People talk about the cheap cost of uh, oil coming out of the Persian Gulf now. You know, the incremental investments there in Abu Dhabi, in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, these are getting to be quite expensive fields compared to where we were 20 years ago. Uh, and they're not going to idly make investments and then keep all of that shut in, risking that it is going to be used. Uh, we don't know their objective function, all of the other considerations that drive their decisions, how they're going to spend their investable funds, but none of them are short on funds. They haven't been short on funds during this 20-year period when essentially investment in reserves was static. They, they had plenty of money to do that if they wanted. It wasn't this or something else. One last question. I'm going to go back to Fred for a second. Fred, um, it struck me that when, when you went through what you had hoped to accomplish with your policy agenda, that there, there, was, there seemed to be much more direct policy means by which you could achieve those objectives if that's our objective. So for instance, uh, if we want to reduce our dependency on uh, foreign crude or crude that doesn't come from North America, uh, it would strike me that the simplest way of doing that would just pop an oil tariff on, uh, on, and not get into the rest of this stuff. You put a tariff on uh, crude oil imports outside of North America and then let the market adjust. Or if our uh, interest is in reducing uh, petroleum consumption, uh, then simpler than having a cafe standard would be just to have an energy tax, right, or a gasoline or oil tax. And uh, in fact, there's a mountain of economic analyses done that show that the cost of a fuels tax is only a small percentage of the true cost of the cafe standard. So the better way of going about it is just a tax. Uh, or if we want to diversify away from uh, oil and transportation markets, I assume high oil prices give us incentives to do that. But if there's not enough incentive to do that because of market failures in research and development, which I know uh, there are arguments for, why not just have a robust R&D tax credit, that uh, refundable R&D tax credit? Uh, these were all things that seemed to me to be more direct ways of getting at your policy objectives, and yet uh, SAFE doesn't seem to be entertaining them, and I'm wondering why. In regard to the potential of a tariff on Im imported uh, petroleum and exempting domestically produced oil, uh, that would be contrary to most of the, the trade agreements and, and that we have signed in our uh, obligations under the, the WTO. So that's, that's a non-starter. In the case of the uh, uh, oil tax, you're exactly right. And in fact, the ESLC and SAFE has said quite publicly, you know, a, a better solution than CAFE would be to just put a tax on petroleum, which would provide the economic incentive to develop alternatives in a, in a market-based way. But the reality is it is a complete political, uh, it, it, it's not going to happen in this country. I mean, the President of the United States has said that it, it took him a while to realize it, but his popularity goes up and down, not for any other reason than the price of, of, of gasoline. 
Yesterday, I was testifying at the House uh, Transportation and Infrastructure uh, uh, Committee on the requirement to increase, the industry uh, supports it. We have 660 airplanes, but 90 some odd thousand trucks. And the entire industry supports increasing fuel taxes because our infrastructure has not kept pace. It hadn't been increased since 1994. The reason that they haven't been able to increase the fuel tax is because during the same period of time, you've seen the price of, of petroleum go up from 2001 <laughs> I think we were paying about 67 cents for a gallon of jet fuel. Uh, it's now about $3.30. It's a 5X. So as the price of fuel has gone up, it's taken about $2,500 or $3,000 out of the average family's uh, disposable income. It's gone from about uh, 3% to almost 5% of their, of their GDP. So the reason that we advocated CAFE standards was precisely because we did not think we could get uh, uh, fuel taxes uh, put in uh, place. And the last one was? The ref uh, refundable R&D tax credit. Well, I, 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 clearly R&D is, is a very important uh, part of this equation because we all benefit from the breakthroughs that have been made by inventors and scientists and so forth. But if you look at the, uh, at the history of, of R&D, uh, the, the, most of the R, most of it, not all of it, has been funded by the government. And, and what we call R&D in the private sector is really uh, production development. Mm -hmm. And so National Institute of Health, DARPA, ARPA-E, it seems to, to us that that's where, in the scheme of things, a relatively small amount of money can be sent to, to try to move, these, uh, to, to move these technologies along or provide incentives for the market to try to cross the chasm. I mean, we would not support and did not support direct investment by the government in things like uh, battery manufacturers or so forth. You need to be doing it on the... The, the pure R&D side of the house where no private entity can take the heat of spending that kind of, of money or trying to put some sort of incentives to drag, the, uh, to drag the technology into the marketplace, which has been done you know, uh, many times before on, on a number of different technologies. So that's the approach that we would, we would take to that. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I had a debate some years ago on this topic <clears throat> with the uh, Breakthrough Institute, which promotes a lot of this stuff. And it's interesting, in the course of research and the debate, I ran into a paper by Alan Goolsby, not somebody who normally you'd see cited at a podium at the Cato Institute, but Goolsby made the uh, uh, argument, uh, the empirical argument, that R&D is generally, R&D dollars from the feds are generally captured in salaries by scientists and engineers because the supply of the people who can do this work is relatively fixed. And so when you throw a whole bunch of money into that uh, system, it's generally captured in a higher salary, and only a small part of it actually forwards the R&D. And of course, it's pretty good if you, know, you got that work, but if you're trying to compete with the government costs, well, all you've done is the government has increased everybody's salary and your cost of doing R&D. So he argued that if you really want to do this, you should probably subsidize the creation of scientists and engineers and physicists maybe in the education level rather, rather than have R&D, because it might be an easier way going about it. Well, it might be. Uh, Austin is a very um, um, erudite individual, and uh, I know him, and that, uh, that he makes a very good point. 
But again, at the end of the day, we, we all benefit from these incredible innovations that we've seen in our lifetime. I'll bet you there's not a single person in this audience that is not equipped with some sort of device in their pocket that's an iPhone or a Blackberry like I have or, or so forth. Well, most of us, I don't think anybody uh, can remember uh, Michael Douglas playing in, it, in his role Gordon Gecko when he's on the telephone, this thing that looked like one of these military walkie-talkies that we had in the Marine Corps. Well, to go from that in a 20-year period, because that movie, I think, if I'm not mistaken, was a 1993 movie, to this is unbelievable. And, and it's the development on lithium-ion batteries. And the reality is lithium-ion battery progress was funded by the Japanese government. Mm -hmm. so and we uh, a little for, bit. you know, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So however you get the R&D done on, on promising technologies, that to us is a much better thing than trying to to decide this company or that company or so forth, provide either the incentives or or some sort of help on the R&D, and hopefully you'll have that conceptual breakthrough that makes a lot of these things possible. We're here to for that they have not been possible. Well, fair enough. I will now uh, turn these questions over to our audience. We have a few minutes. What, uh, let's see, I've been given some instructions. You guys have rules here. Uh, please wait to be called on. That's for me. Wait for the microphone so that everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear your question. Otherwise, our millions of viewers on the internet will not <laughs> hear your, your erudite and penetrating question. <clears throat> and so that we know you're not an agent of uh, Al-Qaeda or anything, announce your name and affiliation when you ask your question. That having been settled, let me start right in front here, this gentleman. Uh, Hossein Ibn Yusuf, International Petroleum Enterprises. I uh, uh, wholeheartedly agree with the comment that Mr. Uh, Smith made on the, uh, the lack of uh, um, that, that uh, you know, the uh, um, oil market is not free. Uh, the, but I can't go along with, you know, the OPEC bashing that has been going on even before the Arab oil embargo, actually. The, uh, um, the um, priv private companies uh, didn't do much better uh, before the nationalizations. So there is not a direct relationship between uh, the private ownership of the, of the reserves and the, and the level of production. The uh, OPEC, uh, over OPEC uh, actually had a considerable amount of difficulties even meeting uh, their uh, budgetary requirements uh, for, for years. It's been only the last few years that have, you know, been in a surplus uh, position. I'm, um, I go along with the market solution, but I can't agree with the selective approach on, on this. Um, as Mr. Smith mentioned, uh, uh, they haven't really fluctuated, uh, you know, the, uh, the level of production recently. Uh, their actual capacity has gone up over the decades. Uh, he correctly mentioned the impact that we saw after uh, Libya's production. But what I'm uh, pointing to is really another major issue that was not even mentioned today that had a considerable amount of impact on uh, higher prices because it amounts to, the restriction amounts to roughly 15% of the total global consumption of oil, and, and, and which is equivalent 
of uh, you know, the entire production of the US or Africa or the maximum production of the North Sea or what we hope to get from the Caspian. Let, and let, I'm let talking Fred answer your question. I'm talking about a couple of your points. I'm, I'm talking about uh, the economic sanctions that are imposed on a number of oil producing countries over the years, and the amount is roughly six million barrels. Okay. I'm not talking about fairness, but is it practical to ignore it altogether? All right, Thank right. you. Is this to me? Well, well, I'll start off just by saying I, I didn't bash OPEC. Uh, quite the contrary. I, I responded to what Professor Smith said about comments about fairness by saying that it's their oil. I mean, uh, the issue of whether OPEC can legally do what they do has been litigated. They're sovereign actors. They're state actors. They, they, they can do what they need to do. I mean... The United States, in the form of the Texas Railroad Commission, did exactly the same as OPEC to try to keep a floor and a stable price to incent production. So I certainly have not said anything to, to bash OPEC. It's their legal, legal right, as our courts have, have, have said, that, that they can do it. Secondarily, I would completely agree with you on the, on the sanctions issue. Therein is the problem. Oil has become a geopolitical weapon of choice both for the United States' interest and against the United States' interest. And so uh, what I would like to do is for the United States to end up to be more economically secure and not fight foreign wars over a, uh, a, a commodity. When I was a young man, I was involved in a foreign war. <clears throat> I think about it every day. It was about ideology, but that didn't make it any better to all those names on the Vietnam Memorial and the youngsters that were lost in Afghanistan and and, uh, and, and Iraq. We need to get into a situation where oil is no longer, for the United States at least, a geopolitical uh, cause belli. And the recommendations that the ESLC have made will do that. And it's important to recognize the ESLC was composed of four-star generals and admirals, many of whom had spent their lives dealing with this exact issue. And that was their objective too. Let me, let me let Jim answer that, a, a, a variation on that question. Um, my long slog through the energy literature, the oil literature, suggests that while it's certainly true that a lot of politicians and military officials think we need to go to war to secure oil supplies from abroad, virtually, or not, I won't say virtually nobody, I'll say very few economists who study oil markets believe that we need to exert military power to access global crude oil markets, at least given the market as it exists today. Would you agree with that? Uh, generally, I would. The world oil market is viewed as a commercial playing field where if you're willing to pay the price, if you have the transportation, you can access whatever volume you want uh, on a non-discriminatory basis. And it's worked that way almost all the time with very few exceptions. I think on the point, though, of the sanctions, uh, I would make two observations. One, to the extent that sanctions are a substitute for going to war, we might have to rethink uh, whether what is our position with respect to sanctions. And I'm not sure I would view the sanctions as having been leveled as an instrument of our thirst for petroleum. We have North Korea right now as a primary recipient of sanctions with nothing whatsoever to do with petroleum. Uh, and yet it is a substitute, maybe not a successful one, we could debate that, but it's another uh, uh, means of 
international relations and geopolitics. You're, I agree with that. That's not to say that it's necessarily wrong. Show me an alternative. Jerry, can I <clears throat> say something too? The, uh, I, I would say that um, I'm not sure that the sanctions have actually reduced the amount of oil because the other producers have picked up some of the slack on the reductions that have come in. Uh, you know, in, if we attempt to limit Iran's exports, for example, Saudi Arabia may pick up the slack. But uh, I, I would agree with you, I think, and I would agree with Mr. Smith, that uh, we should not be impeding world trade in a commodity that is really important to the entire economy. Uh, and that the, to the extent that politics intrudes in the market, we're usually worse off. I think we all agree with that. Unfortunately, we have only time for maybe one or two more questions here in the front. Yes, I'm Bert Gorowski, and for disclosure, <clears throat> I'm a citizen of a, of a nation where the state receives 97% of all the country's exports directly into the coffers. So I'm an old cursed citizen. But I wanted to make a comment on, on OPEC as such, because uh, there are some clear limits. At this very moment, at these prices, all the European countries receive more fiscal revenues per barrel of oil than the price of oil. So in that sense, uh, it has not been all, all together successful. The gasoline taxes in Europe uh, are over 100% of the whole oil price. Thank you. I mean, David, that's you. Thank you. David Kreutzer with the Heritage Foundation. And I have a question for uh, Professor Morris, and maybe uh, Professor Smith might chime in as well. You, I think you attribute the volatility in oil prices to a clumsy cartel. And I would ask, how would you distinguish a, this explanation as a clumsy cartel from a tautology? That is, when prices go up, they're effective. When they go down, they're clumsy. And is that a better explanation of volatility than simply spare capacity? When demand shocks push us up to where there's no spare capacity, prices spike. Uh, well, I, I would distinguish a clumsy cartel from just demand shocks because in certain circumstances, my reading of the literature is that people think that OPEC has been effective at limiting supply, which a limit which would not have occurred but for OPEC, right? So they're not always able to do that because of the internal factors, but sometimes they have their act together. I, I don't want that to be interpreted as OPEC bashing, I, and I also don't, I certainly didn't intend, I don't think Roger or I intended any comment on unfairness of OPEC having the oil. It's their oil and do what they want with it, uh, and largely they want to sell it, uh, but they want to sell it at a price that, that maximizes the revenue. So I would distinguish a clumsy cartel from just merely having demand shocks in that I think the evidence shows that sometimes OPEC is effective in limiting supply in ways that would not have occurred but for the existence of the cartel. In other words, the response to the market would have been an increase. And I think the other point is the overall limit on uh, building additional capacity, which would, could be brought into use on uh, in times when demand rises. Uh, has had an impact, and so we're more often in the constrained situation than we would be absent the cartel. All right, we have time for one more question right there. That's who you're hoping for. You better take it. No, he's uh, been waving his hand. The one on the front. Okay, one of the fr this fellow in the front. I'm sorry. You can take two. Thank you. It's good to be recognized. Thank you. My name is Todd Wiggins, local journalist. I'm a, certainly a fan of what you've accomplished over the many years, Mr. S Smith. I read about your company and uh, admire what you've done. But my correct question is, with respect to the type of uh, vehicles that you use for the trucks, et cetera, 
Have you delved into alternative fuel vehicles? Obviously, you're very conscious of, of this topic. Have you been tempted or implemented any aspects of um, alternative fuel vehicles? And the last question is, uh, do you still use the, uh, the, the I love to, to talk about the logo, your logo development, which is, has a subliminal message in it. Still, a lot of people aren't familiar with that. And I love to use that as a joke at parties to see if people are conscious of what you designed into the, or had designed into that logo. So, well, as it applies to the logo, I get a, still an email every couple of weeks to say, do you know you have an arrow in your logo? And of course, my, <clears throat> my comment back is, yes, I do know. And it was put in there by Landor and Associates, who's a great design firm in, in San Francisco. So it was meant to be forward looking and, and, uh, and perhaps a subject of cocktail conversations too. Maybe they were smarter than I gave them credit. The answer to your question about alternative vehicles, yes, we have approximately 450 alternative vehicles in the fleet today. I think that's roughly, uh, I may be off a little bit, 350 hybrid electrics and about 100 uh, electrics. Uh, I, I personally believe that the light commercial vehicle is the most likely for conversion to electric power because electric power is per mile 75 <clears throat> to 80% less to operate at today's electricity prices than an internal combustion engine vehicle. It is the capital costs that remain high. So let's take a, a van like a Sprinter size van we use in our express company. Uh, a, a high, an all electric vehicle of that size would be roughly $100,000 and $105,000 and uh, an, uh, a diesel would be about 60,000. So as battery technology continues to improve, and it is on a trajectory that, that will improve it, I don't have any doubt that a large portion of the, of the light duty commercial vehicles, not necessarily personal until it gets, the batteries get even cheaper. And then finally, we are testing today both CNG and LNG vehicles for our heavy over the road trucks. 